Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's going on? I am super excited. I don't know if you know why, but I'm so excited. Is it because you're going to see me in less than a month? Less than a month? Yes. Uh, that's exactly why. And it's going to be fall. It's going to be fall colors. I love when people talk about fall colors. It's like, just say trees, guys. It's just trees. <laughs> I like fall colors. I love fall colors. We're going to get some pumpkin spice lattes. Maybe you will. I will most definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, you know what? This this big event is letting me come home for Thanksgiving. And so I get to have my father's pumpkin pie for the first time in many, many years oh, fresh. That's very sweet. Yes. And I get to be home. Not quite for Thanksgiving. I won't be home on the Monday, but I'll be able to see my family and some friends during an important weekend for most people, which is great. Before I head back to law school, because Americans don't care about Canadian Thanksgiving. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see friends, and hopefully, we'll see some fans because yes, we got a live show. We've got a free live show, and that is going to be on. Here are the details. Finally, Saturday, October 12th at the Tarragon Theater, specifically the rehearsal hall. And what time is it? What time is it at? It's at one o'clock. And the idea is that we are going to be talking about art and activism in the context of the new economy. And so there's a play that is on at the Tarragon Theater at the same time, and it's called The Jungle. And a lot of the themes in The Jungle, which are uh, the gig economy and trying to get by and love, um, are, uh, are themes that we often discuss on this podcast. And so the playwrights were the ones who suggested uh, setting this up. And so we want to shout them out. And you definitely should ch- uh, take a look at The Jungle if you are into theater, or even if you're not into theater, you want to check it out. It is running at the Tarragon, and we will hopefully see some of the, f- the fans of the play at the live show. But of course, also fans of the live show at the live show and if you're not into theater get into theater what are you doing (laughs) improve your life come on (laughs) theater is wonderful (laughs) there are tickets they are not for sale but the tickets are are on because uh capacity is limited so make sure you get uh your your hands on some tickets we've been advertising it on our face on our facebook and on twitter and the tarragon has set up uh an event as well um, with all the information for how to reserve your tickets. So check out Sandy and Nora's Facebook page, which is just Facebook slash Sandy and Nora, or get in touch with us directly if you can't uh, find information online. And we hope to see you there. One other thing I want to mention is there's been a lot of a lot of folks have been have been um, signing up on our Patreon. Oh. And I want to give thanks to those folks because there's it's been a lot actually in the last month. And I think I mentioned some folks last week. Uh, I'm going to go back anyway and say thank you to Jackie and Colin and Arlie and Priscilla and Nicole and Colin and Lane and Banerjee, Caitlin and Emily for all of your new donations this month. And to everyone else, of, of course, who have been uh, who have been constant uh, donate donors to the podcast. We really, really appreciate it. And actually, some of the money from our Patreon is what's making this live show in Toronto possible. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much for all of your support. Uh, we really appreciate it. And honestly, this uh, this podcast couldn't continue in the very amazing way that it has uh, been able to grow over the years without the support of folks like you. So we really, really, really do appreciate it. Thank you. 
So, Sandy, I don't know if you've heard what's been going on in Canada this week, but there's a little thing called an election. (laughs) No, there's not. Well, there's really not because it's like not much is happening. (laughs) But um, if you talk to like political nerds, it's like it's like the end of the world. This is the, the biggest news for them of all time. And everything will change based on the outcome of this election. It's exciting. There's drama. There's underdogs. There's overdogs. <laughs> uh, I'm just... It's boring. <laughs> okay, so one thing that I do, I am a little frustrated about, is that we're recording this on uh, Sunday, uh, midday, and early, if you're on the West Coast like me. And... I'm like annoyed because last night, Andrew Scheer, the leader of the conservative party, did this really, did you see this really weird? <laughs> you did. Okay. So I love it. <laughs> Andrew Scheer did a really bizarre press conference last night. Um, I mean, I saw it at midnight Pacific Standard Time, which is like three in the morning, but I think it had happened like at like 11 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time, which is, I think, where he was. Like, do you know what time it was? I saw notice. Yeah, I saw notice that it was going to happen at 20 minutes after 11. So it had not happened by 11 o'clock yet or or it was happening at that moment. And the and the journalists were all like recording instead of tweeting. I mean, it's possible that he was like in the prairies, maybe, but it's still too late. No, he, was, <laughs> he was on this plane. He was on his plane. Okay. Yeah. Like, no, no, no. I knew that he was on his plane, but the plane could have been, I'm saying that it could have been earlier than like midnight, you know, but not by much, not by much. I mean, I mean, to to have a flying press conference is like, you're announcing that your star candidate has been indicted for murder. Like that's. Well, okay. Right. So this is the thing. It's like he, he decides to do this like emergency press conference really late at night on, uh, on the fucking weekend. Like. (laughs) And all he says is, hey, guys, just wanted to make it clear. If anyone in my in my uh, party who's running has ever said anything racist or homophobic in their past, if they apologize, we're good with it. OK, good night, everyone. Like, what? <laughs> I'm sorry. Back that up. What are you talking about? And I'm like, okay, so here we are recording this on the Sunday morning. And I'm like, is there some bombshell story that's going to come out on Monday that makes this podcast on Tuesday irrelevant? Why? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. So this, this I think, is is the kind of strategy that a political strategist would say getting ahead of something. He's getting ahead <laughs> yes, of something. Yes, indeed. Now, Sheer has uh, had a couple of candidates already get in trouble for social media posts, specifically were homophobic. I'm not sure that there's been a social media post that has been racist, although yesterday the news was dominated by... By this by this woman who's a friend of <laughs> Faith Goldie's. It's like... <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. And rather than, like, answering questions, she ran away from the from the journalists at her at her campaign launch. And Sheer was, like, kind of standing there looking like a bit of a loser, saying, well, her, sp- her statement speaks for itself. And her statement, of course, doesn't say anything, which... I guess makes sense. Her statement speaks for itself, aka. Well, also her friendship with Faith Goldie speaks for itself. Yeah, hundred percent. So it can't. I don't know. I don't know what you think, Nora, but it can't be 
that press conference cannot have been in response to those things. Like, I just feel like something bigger is expected. Like, they are expecting something bigger. And they think that by putting out the message that and it, it was weird the way the message was phrased. Like, he was he said, if people have said something in their past uh um that is homophobic or racist and would be viewed in 2019 as inappropriate <laughs> as though there's like some magic year in the past where it was like totally fine <laughs> like, 1997 oh no no that was acceptable in yeah, 1997 racism in 1997 was like you know you know everybody was a little racist in 1997 was a politician like what do you mean what are you talking about i don't really understand the way that he phrased it and then he's like you know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna forgive that as long as they apologize and we're gonna move on i don't yeah i don't know what they're trying to gain from that and i uh it just i i don't think it can be about the issues that have already cropped up that you've described like it doesn't it seems like it's much bigger than that, but anyway, you know yeah. we're 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 waiting for it too. You know, if it comes out on Monday, um, it won't be in this podcast. But you know, you can always follow us on Twitter and see what we think <laughs> about it. Yeah, I the, like I I actually am more inclined to say that there isn't something that's about to drop that he's trying to get ahead of, and instead that it's like it's like a him- broad cat. It's like a broad <laughs> a broad strategy. Exactly. Someone's yeah. bound to have been found to do something terrible. So let me just do this thing on a Saturday night on this yeah. plane in an emergency way at night to cover my ass. Oh, no, Nora. I, well, know. because because it doesn't make any sense because it's like because if if he's got something coming out that's really, really bad, this will not absolve it. If anything, this will make it worse because something that is really, really, really bad is not going to be made better by a simple apology and him announcing that that's all it's going to take for someone to keep their candidacy tells me that they're just trying to put up the broad kind of strokes of what will be accepted in the campaign, anticipating that, of course, there will be more homophobic and racist comments unearthed related to these candidates. And so then the only ones that they really have to deal with are the ones who, like, call for the death of people or who are, like, physically abusive or who do something that is so outrageous that even the conservative base would be angry at it. Because keep in mind, he's talking to the conservative base, yeah, totally. But as much as I agree with that analysis, that you you're correct. Like that, it it doesn't make anything better by getting out ahead of it like this if it is something big. But it also doesn't make anything better by doing it like this if it's something small or something unknown. Totally, it's like complete, essentially completely useless. <laughs> so <laughs> at best, <laughs> at best, <laughs> and so and and totally destructive at worst. So I don't know. I don't no I, I don't know i i'm just really confused i don't i don't know who sits around at a strategy meeting and says let's do this as a result of nothing but potentially impending problems i mean all those douchebags moved to the the, the people's party of canada no <laughs> that was a joke i i don't i don't i don't believe that <laughs> <laughs> the, the most outrageous ones um, would have. And of course, Maxime Bernier has gotten rid of his his first candidate as well. I'm not sure if you saw that. I did. And he got rid of his first candidate because he called for Bernier to denounce racism. And Bernier was like, fuck you. You're out of the party. 
<laughs> I know. It's like it, it, he's just trying to make things really clear. I mean, that might have just been a, a media stunt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I want everybody to know that we are fine with being racist. And Andrew Shear's like, I want everybody to know that we are fine with being racist yesterday as long as there's an apology. Yeah. So I think this is probably coming out of the confluence of two big events, though, in the past two days, right? So we've already talked about Justina McCaffrey, whose who's friendship with Faith Goldie, I mean, is, is documented online. And you can imagine that, you know, only like shithounds hang out with shithounds. So McCaffrey's probably a shithound like Goldie. But on Friday, uh, there was also a report unearthed uh, of the candidate Gada Melek, who's the federal candidate for Mississauga Streetsville. And in that report, uh, she was not green lighted to run for the Ontario Progressive Conservatives. Uh, yes, I did see this. Yeah. And so I think that they're probably realizing that there may have been a, an issue in their vetting process, that if, they're, if, if journalists are able to show that in the past, these people who have not been allowed to run are now being allowed to run, that this is their blanket way of just being like, OK, if you apologize, then you can keep running to hopefully, you know, if the, if the next 10 examples of people saying bad stuff in their past, five of them are like apologable, apologize apologizable <laughs> and five of them are you need to not run then they've at least right. tried to cover their ass for the first five but I go back to what you said I think that at best this is completely useless <laughs> <laughs> yeah and just for folks who don't understand who don't who haven't heard that news that Nora's talking about there was a, a person who was running who um was uh but did not pass the vetting process for the Ontario a Progressive Conservative Party um, because she was like really into conspiracy theorists, hates uh, queer and trans people and is like generally like totally fucked. So uh, and, <laughs> and did and did pass the federal conservative uh, vetting process and is a candidate. And in Mississauga Streetsville, I mean, could could very well win and could very well win. <laughs> So um, that's good. That's good. Everything's great. But, you know, we don't only have to talk about the weird goings ons on the going goings ons going ons, whatever, <laughs> mm. on the plane of Andrew Shear. There's also strange plane things happening with the Liberal Party, <laughs> specific like their bus, <laughs> their bus, uh, you know, like ruining the wing or crashing into the wing of their plane i don't really understand how that happens but it seems like like it could be a metaphor for something or maybe some sort of foreshadowing i don't know i don't know on september 11th no less on september 11th it, it i mean that was like very strange news yep 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 but no we don't have to talk about aviation or you know vehicles <laughs> i'm just being ridiculous <laughs> We should probably talk about what is happening in this election. Yeah, what is happening in this election? So we've got like three parties who have very different strategies. And if you're tuning into this podcast because you're 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 tired of all of the mainstream, boring political podcasts that just talk about what you can fucking figure out on your own with your eyes and your ears, we are here to try and help a little bit push past some of that kind of surface analysis and say, what exactly are each of these parties trying to do? We've got the liberals who think that they can win if they hide under the coats in the coat room and wait. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, thanks. We've got the conservatives who think that they can win 
by making Andrew Shear as small as possible and to not not say anything incorrect and just coast, just coast. So rather than hiding under coats, he's like just kind of like like standing in the corner, hoping no one asks him to dance because he's like freaked out by dancing. Uh, okay, that I'll accept it. Okay, okay. And then you have the NDP. So for the NDP, this is a this is a campaign that has no money basically, that is not as organized clearly as they have been in the past or as the other two parties, but who also have the benefit of extremely low expectations. And that's a benefit in politics because when you can surprise people that you are, in Jagmeet Singh's case, if he is able to show everybody that he is able to speak very well on camera, he is able to take uh, debate uh, debates, questions on like directly and sound confident, then all of a sudden you have journalists go, holy, wow, wow, I really thought that he like was like just uh, couldn't say any words at all. Like this is really surprising. And that helps to actually propel the NDP from now until the election uh, to be on the upswing because you know at the end of the day you definitely don't want to be on the downswing no matter what party you are and certainly the NDP wants to have wind, it, wind in its sails as it kind of stares down the next five weeks or whatever and the greens the greens are playing a very weird strategy they are they are making a lot of mess missteps specifically as it comes to Quebec so I'm not sure if you saw this but there's Pierre Nantel, who was a former two-term member of parliament for the NDP. Nantel has come out and said he's a sovereigntist, and he's been he's always been a sovereigntist, and he was flirting with the bloc or with um, with the Greens to run. Mm-hmm. I did see this, yes. So on Power and Politics, on CBC's political show, Elizabeth May tried to argue that Nantel, he's not a separatist, but he's a sovereigntist. And there's a difference, and English Canadians just don't understand the difference. And I just love that, because... She doesn't speak French. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there's missteps mm-hmm. like this with the, with the Greens. They've been really goofy with the Nantel stuff because, you know, at the end of the day, they, w- there's two options for the Greens. Either they say Nantel's in the party and he's there because we embrace, we actually are open to an idea of a new federalism in Canada and that that new federalism might include a free Quebec. Or she can say uh, Nantel has his own opinions and they aren't the same opinions of the party. Like, those are the two options. And instead, she's been kind of riding the line. And a lot of people are very easily saying, wait a minute, do you know what the fuck you're talking about? Because it sounds like you have no idea what you're talking about, Ms. May. Which is um, which is interesting because May is known as being a s- sober, intense, well-researched, skilled yeah. politician. Um, but she does get into get herself into trouble with some of the stuff that she says, both off the cuff and then also kind of when she's trying to justify stuff that right. seems pretty weird. I think that that's a good roundup of kind of like, you know, just a bare bones where we're at. But let's talk about where we're at in the campaign just more broadly. Like right now is like the period of time where we don't really know anything. The politicians are just getting their feet wet. Like not all the platforms are out yet. The NDP released their platform super, super early. The liberals and the conservatives, I think, don't have a platform up yet. Uh, The Greens have a platform out that um, is like really confusing. And so this is where we're at right now. And I'm just like, I'm curious. You've been, did you watch the debate? You didn't watch the debate. You watched parts of the debate. I watched I watched about an hour of the debate. Yeah. What did you think of Justin Trudeau's performance? (laughs) Uh, I thought that it was probably a good idea for him to not be there. Mm, Interesting. Go Mm -hmm. on. 
I mean, a good idea. I mean, a good idea from his perspective. I think it's a bad idea from the perspective of like average fucking people who are sick and tired of political games. But at this moment in the campaign where there's not a whole lot to actually talk about because the the conservatives don't have their platform out and because the even though the NDP has its platform out, like they're still announcing things and there still is going to be a rhythm to their campaign where later on they'll be making major kind of policy announcements that they're going to hope will, you know, galvanize people towards their side. Yeah. And so there was very little of substance discussed in the debate. And because there was very little of substance discussed, it was, I found it to be just kind of like a cacophony of boring political argumentation. So it was like, it was just like populist rhetoric over and over. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. Well, because I mean, you know, I didn't watch it. So I, you know, I couldn't watch it. I, I wanted to, but couldn't. Um, but I I've heard I've seen several people say uh, that one, it was boring, but also two that Jagmeet Singh was the winner. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. What, do you, what did you think? I, I don't know if you can be as clear to say there was a winner to that debate, to be honest. I mean, he was he was very confident and very strong. There's no question about that. Andrew Shear came across very weird and very meek. And he it was not a, a, a debate that you would send around to people and say, this guy's going to win. For, for Jagmeet, definitely. You would show the clips in the debate to say, look how strong he is on this. Look how strong he is on that. The reason why I hesitate to say if there's even a winner is because with, without any policies being announced... Then it kind of just descends into, you know, the NDP saying, well, we're going to stand up for the little guy. We're going to stand up against corporate Canada. And then the conservatives say, well, we stand up for the little guy and we don't we stand up to corporate Canada as well. And then it's like, OK, who's lying here? Right. There's no right. in the absence of the NDP being able to say we're going to stand up to corporate Canada by X, Y, Z, which they they aren't able to do either because that those extra points of their policies are going to come later or because they're not actually sure. Like this is this is what I feel is the biggest problem with the left right now is there's a lot of things that go unsaid that leave in people's minds doubts that the NDP actually does have a plan like for uh, changing the economy to be to be carbon neutral, for example. Like what exactly would be the steps that you would get there? And and that's a real that's a real problem for the NDP because and for the Greens as well. But I think the Greens get away with it because they have better branding of being green. And so people give them the benefit of the doubt. The what the NDP should be doing is like, look, uh, public service investments in in Alberta are going to be the best stabilizer for that place to deal with um, with the jobs crisis. Right. We need public services and the government, federal government is able to do that with opening a Revenue Canada branch. This Revenue Canada branch is going to employ 2000 people and every one of those 2000 people is going to fight against offshore tax havens. That's wow. the kind. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty good. Nora. I, like I mean, <laughs> that's the kind of thing that, that people go oh wow that's great and then yeah. where are you gonna put it you're gonna put it in this region and this region's been hit by the by the oil crisis the worst and this is how many jobs it's going to create and this is how the hospital is going to operate blah 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 but instead we have um we, we we have nothing we have i'm going to stand up to the little guy and i don't know if you saw this but singh spoke to the canadian club last week and i i don't know if his speech was published but i would love to see what he said because the message coming out of the ndp was that he was able to walk to the canadian club and stand up to corporate canada 
And I really hope that he did stand up to corporate Canada in that speech. If that's the line the NDP wants to get him elected on, they really do need to show what exactly he's saying to stand up to corporate Canada to make people see that that actually is happening and it's not just a line or it's not just rhetoric. Good fucking point. I agree. One of the things that I thought was really interesting last week was how Brampton played a really major role in the political kind of imagination of all the parties. Singh, he went through Brampton, made an announcement uh, that he would fund a new hospital, uh, which was criticized in some parts of the press because, of course, that's a provincial responsibility. But anyway, um, but it does speak to uh, a local, very local issue in Brampton, which is there's not enough there's not enough hospital beds at all. And Andrew Shear also went to Brampton. Brampton is such an interesting city to me because it is like it's like ground zero of the entire logistics economy in Canada, right? Like trucking and shipping all go through Brampton, whether they come up from the United States, or they go east to west across Canada. It's um, it's got corporate headquarters mm-hmm. for a lot of the biggest industries in the country. It's got some of the highest workplace injury mm-hmm. and death statistics in in Ontario. Um, it's a it's a massively growing mm-hmm community and you and I both have very personal connections to to Brampton. That's the thing that makes it most interesting. Um, (laughs) Yeah I I guess we both lived in Brampton for did you live in Brampton actually or you just went to school there? No I just went to school. Okay yeah so I lived in Brampton for quite some time and the, the thing that's really interesting about Brampton as a community and communities like Brampton for the election is that the way first of all it is super super dense like the way that the like urban sprawl happens around Toronto and likely other places in 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 Canada that are experiencing the type of urban growth that Toronto does is that people get pushed out of the cities and try to as much as possible um, either share living expenses to like buy a home together or are forced to to move their families out to to the suburbs. And that creates a certain type of constituency it creates a certain type of voter the other thing that's really interesting is that like the the suburbs tend to be it's not as like diverse when it comes to like political opinion when you see it it's less about like you know when you're going through this what am i trying to say here Nora? when you're going through the city <laughs> and you see like all these different signs when you're in the suburb it's like you're you're like one block is entirely conservative and like three blocks yeah. later maybe it's entirely liberal you might get a smattering of greens like um, your weird na- neighbors over there <laughs> who <laughs> who are fiercely independent who have greens and you know like the idea that the NDP made such a massive inroads in Brampton is, is actually quite significant given the way that the, the suburbs operate um, to like um, to uh, maintain the entrenchment of like the conservative and liberal parties. And so it's really interesting that these parties are trying to make their make a statement happen in Brampton. But it's really important that if they're going to do that in a community like Brampton, that they need to understand what's happening uh, for people in the suburbs and that they are actually speaking to what the, what people are going through, the difficult life that um, people can sometimes be going through in the suburbs. Yeah. So there was a big feature in the Globe and Mail this weekend, and it was um, yes. it was very it, you, people should definitely take a read of it if you can. It 
focused on the cost of living in the suburbs in Canada. And they focused on a community in BC, a community in Alberta, you know, outside of Vancouver, outside of Edmonton, and they focused on Brampton. And uh, it, it was behind a paywall, so I'm not sure people necessarily were able to read the whole thing. But I did see that the lead of the article went kind of viral because it's so, um, it sounds so impossible for a lot of people, I think. Is a, a, a 20... Which which was weird to me because I, I thought it was... I, I When I read the article, like I saw a lot of people were sharing this lead on Twitter, which was like, you know, it described a, a person who was living in or owned a owns a one million dollar house in Brampton and makes I think under thirty thousand. I don't have just just at he said it said at thirty thousand dollars. Right. Uh, Makes just about thirty thousand dollars a year. And people were sharing this on Twitter like this is impossible. How how is he doing this? The mortgage is (laughs) far too much for him to be able to afford this. Some people were like the CRA needs to do an investigation into this guy. (laughs) I was like Oh, wow. This is really uh, fascinating that people don't know uh, that so many people don't know, you know, what people go through uh, to to like what what depths of of debt and um, financial creativity people go through to be able to make something like this happen. It's almost as though people who are poor are like super financially literate or something. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> something like that. You know, I, I thought it was really interesting um, how surprised everybody was. I don't know. What did you think? I was totally surprised by how surprised people were too. And the costs... Like the costs seem impossible. So it was a $1 million house. The mortgage payments he has is like $4,500 a month. And you have to read through the article to see how he does it. But of course, he's renting out his basement to many people. He's renting out his first floor to many people. And then the article gets into what the real problem is, which is that household debt is far exceeding household income in this country. And so and this is this is why I find it so fucking frustrating that the parties are 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 so unable to talk about these real issues. So the the article was looking at um, poverty in the suburbs and how uh, and how people are now living with um, payments, monthly payments that amount to 22% of those payments going to interest alone. So whether that's interest wow. on your on your mortgage or interest on your credit card bill, credit card 22 yeah. it's unbelievable it's like 22% of what you are expected to pay every month going out the door to debt, to servicing your debt and not paying off your debt, but literally servicing it. So paying off those monthly installments so that you can kind of push your debt further and further and and make sure that you don't end up in default or whatever. And so with average household debt surpassing 170% of what household income is, what we've seen in this country is austerity has simply pushed public expenditures and therefore public debt onto private budgets, household budgets. And the situation is dire. It is so, so dire. Where is anyone in this election talking to those people? Because the 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 the, the pocketbook promises that a lot of a lot of the politicians are are promising right now, they're just not enough. I mean, some of them are great, but they're just not even close to enough. And so at what point as a society do we say, wait a minute, every single person that that makes money off of someone else's debt is is profiting from poverty. That is a structural profit from pro- from poverty 
and it's I mean it's it's immoral it's disgusting it 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 hurts people I mean it's just like when are we going to start talking about that yeah and I think the way that that is also related to child poverty in this country and we know that there's a a massive child poverty problem in this country um is also you know something that politicians really need to step up and talk about like I know that in some of the platforms we have some discussion going on about um Uh, affordable housing but I think that it like we just need people to understand that it goes far beyond affordable housing what we're talking about here the amount of things that people are having to turn to debt to to like rely on their lives on like just making ends meet it's uh it's like you know it's a total crisis (laughs) um and that needs to be uh, addressed at you know like at primacy in these platforms and um at least so far i'm not seeing it like it is good that we are going to be having a big conversation about pharmacare because obviously that's a big cost for people um and of course uh in terms of medicine those costs tend to go up uh when poverty becomes more of an issue in anybody's uh particular situation so obviously, like, that's really good that we're going to hopefully um, that's going to be one of the, the big debates that are that happen going into October. But, you know, we need to see more discussion about things like childcare. I'm surprised we haven't heard that much about what's happening in the platforms of childcare with all the parties. We have to hear more about what's going on with education or just better fucking education platforms altogether. They fucking suck right now with with the exception of the Greens promising free education, but they haven't told us how they're going to do it. It's just like, like we need to get real, right? We need to get real with uh, what the reality is for most people on the ground right now. Even if you're living in a million dollar home, like you could be having like a really shit situation, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, that's, that is the... Um, the mm-hmm. exposure of that that article to me right like you could own something technically own quote unquote but really it's the banks that own you um and what are we going to do to address that problem yeah because what that really means is that person he can't get sick if if he gets into an accident if something happens maybe someone in his family gets ill or passes away and he has some sort of unexpected cost that's going to affect so many people himself all the people that rely on him because he's renting out his apartment to make ends meet like all the people that he's connected to his kids like it is it's a connected problem absolutely and so we we need to understand how this type of stuff really affects people both individually but also like on a structural community level yeah yeah it's and address those things well, it's amazing that both have been eliminated from our consciousness, both that individual impact and then the individual's broader networks and that structural impact. Both have been rendered invisible to average people. Yeah, absolutely. So the the affordable housing piece, I think, is a really interesting one to talk about because the NDP has promised to build 500 affordable housing, 500,000 affordable housing units in 10 years, which I, I don't think is enough. I don't think it's fast enough, but it's more than the other two no. parties are promising. But the reality is, is that it, it is that the, the solution to this is not just through affordable housing, because affordable housing is not going to be available to everybody. 
And so we need to be looking at what are those market interventions to cool off these housing markets, to stop allowing um, massive amounts of profit to be generated off of people that can't afford to purchase their home. And how do we stop seeing assets like a house as being a part of your personal wealth? Because are you wealthy if you sell your million dollar home and move into a box? <laughs> like like a literal <laughs> box? You're not wealthy anymore. You just have, you're, you live in a box. I mean, you're, you're not wealthy at all. No. Not even anymore. Just at all. <laughs> no, but you're no, no better off if you can't afford your mortgage payments to stay in that million dollar house. So the, the NDP has to think a lot more, I think, uh, and be a lot more bold in their solutions for the housing crisis. I know that they're talking about accelerated loans uh, for co-ops, which is, again, an option. But there needs to be really intense market measures that help to stop the, 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 the massive profits that are being generated within the housing market. Then you look at the Liberals, and I don't know if you saw this promise this week, but the Liberals have promised that they're going to increase their uh, tax credit or something to um, for first-time homebuyers to uh, oh $800,000 yeah. homes. And that, uh, it's unreal. What all that means is that they're they're trying. They're, it's like increase your debt. Like here's a happy story for the banks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One, there's that. Two, it's also a direct subsidy to the private sector from the public sector, because at the end of the day, giving people the ability to just pass on other money to someone else because the government's helping to fund your purchase of something private is a direct private public to private transfer of, of, of money. Like what a waste of our fucking tax money. And to every person who was like, well, $800,000 is a starting house in Vancouver or Toronto, said this to me online because I made a big point about this. It's like... The point is not that that's a starter house for people. The reality is that a starter house for most people is renting. That is a starter house. And so what are we doing to help renters? What are we doing to help people be secure in their in their homes and to be able to raise their children in a rental unit without the fear of eviction? Because I think I actually think that most people would be fine with renting if it wasn't so unstable because no one wants to to displace their children if their landlord's fucking dad sells the fucking place to make a ton of money off of them and then they evict the family, right? No one wants to have exactly. that insta instability with their family. And so people go, okay, well, if I own, there's other kinds of instability, but at the end of the day, my kids won't have to be kicked out of their bedrooms. So where is the help for rental people in rental situations? And, and when can we start getting it out of our head that buying a fucking house is one, a birthright, or two, a rite of passage? It's fucking not. I mean, it's fine if you don't own a house in, the, in your entire life. It's fine if you've never purchased a car in your entire life. These assets are social status symbols more than anything else. And all the liberals are doing is 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 perpetuating that myth and, and giving public money directly into the hands of private developers or into people making money off of off of property. And okay, look, this is just one example of all of the different things that are interconnected um, that are part of our like political the political problems that we're all dealing with right now that it doesn't seem like the parties are truly addressing yet in this election and so you know this is our appeal right like can we talk about these problems in a way that actually um reaches the people who are struggling the most um on the ground uh, and not in some sort of, you know, like really obvious political way that's been discussed for years and years. Like, can we talk about like the real uh, ways that people are being impacted? Um, do these parties even really understand? I hope they do. 
I hope at least one of them does. <laughs> you know, I really expect um, the NDP to understand these issues and to talk to, about them in a in a real way. Um, and I expect the other parties to actually. Um, well, you know what? I actually expect them all to fucking understand it, but I expect the NDP to address it in a in a particular way, and I'm hoping that they do. Um, but you know, we've talked about housing, but that's not the only the only issue, and I'm sure we'll have more to to talk about as the weeks go on. Um, but it is a real problem that we're we're not seeing uh, the type of engagement that we need to be seeing on these issues at this particular juncture of an election, because you know, as we've said before. An election isn't the be all end all to everything, uh, but it is a, a flashpoint moment where we're able to get our issues out on the stage. Um, and also we see how people are thinking about addressing our issues. Uh, and right now, I'm not feeling super, super good about all this. No, it's bleak. And, and, the, and the sad part is that that when we don't talk about these issues directly, the only ones that benefit are the conservatives because the conservatives are able to try and like just tell it, uh, transmit to the most important people that they're speaking to, which is like the, the most wealthy elites of this country to say, don't worry, status quo will be okay. While tricking average people into thinking that the conservatives are the ones who are, are proper managers and they know how to manage the economy. So conservatives actually have the benefit of not needing to say anything, which is why Sheer didn't say very much at the, at the last debate. It's a bad game, folks. <laughs> and, 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 and the liberals will try to play it because they're in power. And, and so it really is dependent on the NDP. It's like you've got the benefit of low expectations and of a new leader to be able to do interesting stuff. Yeah. And fuck, now's the time. I mean, yesterday was the time, but we'll take now too. <laughs> 